0: Here's another Bible study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So, um, I just, uh, yesterday I was... uh, well, we dropped my grandson off up at the airport yesterday. I don't know if you remember. He was a young guy that was, a tall young guy that was playing the jambé here uh, the last couple of weeks. And so anyways, he's on his way. Or actually, he's back in, in uh, Washington State right now. And uh, anyway, so we dropped him off at the airport. And then uh, we were, Teresa and I were looking at a music store. And so we were just driving around. And I saw something in the Twin Cities that just, it was sick. I mean, it's just plain sick. I, I I want to share it with you. It's, it's anyway, it was really, really oh. sick. <laughs> I know, that's sick. <laughs> so Teresa and I were trading off driving and, and uh, I I got out of the car and, and she was getting everything all set up. I go, Oh, that's sick and she goes, What's sick? And then she looked up and of course she rolled her eyes at me just like you know, so just like she's doing right now. <laughs> Anyways, <laughs> Ah, yes. Hey, you guys have heard about that, uh, what's going on in that college in Kentucky? You know, it's, uh, it's an amazing thing, isn't it? Um, I was reflecting on that this past week because it seems like everybody... And their brother and sister are weighing in on this is you know is this a revival or is this some people are skeptical some people are wait and see and others are like oh, let's dive into this and and uh, you know there's no doubt that the lord is doing something and in, in the lives of these students i mean there's no doubt uh, you're they the people that are there that that you know that are there initially you know god's doing something i, I can't deny that um one of the things that I was thinking about, though, is you know um, how just recently—I mean, how soon did we hear about that uh, spy balloon, those Chinese spy balloons? I mean, it was just right away. Everybody's talking about these spy balloons that are flying around and stuff, and so it was like instantaneous. We knew that, and you know, I was thinking about the Calvary Chapel, uh, the the movement, Calvary Chapel, and how that sprung out of out of. Uh, uh, Coast of, Calvary Costa Mesa in the early 60s, and and it was an amazing thing. And you know the the world generally didn't know about it. I mean, people in LA knew all about it, but the people generally, you know, people all over Midwest, East, wherever they were, they didn't find out about it really until this Life magazine article came out, showing hundreds of people getting baptized, thousands of people getting baptized uh, in, on the in the on the beach there. And uh, then it was big news. But you know, it had been going on for a while. And this thing that's taken place, it's like instantaneous and people are making a judgment on it uh, one way or the other. And you know I'm holding back my judgment because a revival, a true revival, it's going to be sustaining. It's going to be sustaining. And one of the things uh, one of the things I' uh, man, I'm, I'm thrilled to hear that there's repentance taking place because a revival will not take place without repentance. A revival's for the church, by the way. It's for the church. It's for Christians. You know, we pray for a revival in this community. You know, we pray that the, this community would come to faith in Christ. We pay for, pray for regeneration. But the church needs revival. And so some people are thinking, well, you know, I need to go down there and be part of this thing that's taking place. And, you know, praise the Lord if you want to do that. Um, but, you know, the Holy Spirit's not just localized there in Kentucky. He's here also among us. And, you know, if if... I've been really encouraged by those of you that are reading the word of God you know going through the word of God on a regular basis because that's where revival comes when we read God's word you can have a revival right here in Rochester right here in your own home by worshiping reading the word of God praying and then obeying just like we were saying trust and obey you know putting it into action man watch what the Lord does in your life when you do that so just want to encourage you again you know I'm not making a Statement either way, I, I do believe that lives are being changed there, so I'm not. I don't want to negate anything. Um, and if it's of the Lord, and I'm praying for those students, but if it's of the Lord, it's going to keep happening, and I think it's going to happen in other places. Might even see it in other universities, other cities, and stuff because you know we're drawing close to the last days. And you know, I was thinking it's, it's so fast that we find something out, and then everybody's making a, a judgment one way or the other. Just think about it. In the last days, the Bible says that those two witnesses are going to be in Jerusalem. And uh, they're going to be killed, and the whole world's going to know it, like instantaneously. We're at that place, in in we're at that place. We're close to it, um, with, you know, mass media being what it is. And and uh, that just tells me the Lord's coming back that much more sooner for his bride. And so we want to be ready. We want to be ready for his return. So, um, and I do believe that there's going to be a great outpouring of the Holy Spirit during the last days. And I think we're in those last days. But I also know the Bible teaches that there's going to be a great apostasy in the last days, too. And so, you know, just pray. I just encourage you to pray. Anyways, having said that, um, if you have your Bibles, if you want to go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Last week, we dealt with the first part of chapter 15, dealing with disputes in the church setting in what is commonly known as the Jerusalem Council. This week, we're going to be looking at the second half of um, Acts chapter 15, and I called it Parting Ways. Parting Ways. Acts chapter 15, verse 32 is where we're going, to, we're going to pick it up. Now, Judas and Silas, themselves being prophets also, exhorted and strengthened the brethren with many words. Wouldn't you have liked to have been at the church in Antioch? Saul or Paul. Barnabas, Silas, all these these great men of the faith there gathered together, uh, teaching the word of God, strengthening the church there. Uh, They were prophets, exhorting and strengthening. So we know from Acts chapter 13, it tells us that Barnabas and Paul were prophets. But now we see also Judas, and it's not the Judas that's infamous. This is Judas also known as Bar Barsabbas, the son of the Sabbath, And Silas, they're also prophets. Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 14, verses 1 through 4, Pursue love and desire spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. For he who speaks in a tongue does not speak to men but to God, for no one understands him. However, in the Spirit he speaks mysteries. But he who prophesies edification and exhortation and comfort, excuse me, but he who prophesies speaks edification and exhortation and comfort to men. He who speaks in a tongue edifies himself, but he who prophesies edifies the church. So we've got all these prophets speaking. The church is edified there in Antioch. Paul would later write this in that same chapter I wish you all spoke with tongues, but even more that you prophesied. For he who prophesies is greater than he who speaks with tongues, unless indeed he interprets that the church may receive edification. And then he is close to the end of that chapter, and he says this, Therefore, brethren, desire earnestly to prophesy, and do not forbid speaking with with tongues. Let all things be done decently and in order. And so prophecy it edifies and builds up the church body when you're praying in tongues you're edifying yourself unless it's interpreted and then everybody else they can say amen to what you're what you're praying so tongues edifies the believer the individual believer but prophecy edifies the church and so we have this a bunch of people here in antioch with the gift of prophecy building up the church of antioch Verse 33, it says, And after they had stayed there for a time, they were sent back with greetings from the brethren to the apostles. However, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. Now, You might have a footnote in your Bible. Some of the New Testament manuscripts do not contain verse 34. And some people think that there was a copyist who uh, kind of tried to fill in a gap and said, well, wrote that about Silas. Um, to possibly explain why Silas was there at a later time in Antioch there. I'm not sure about any of that. I'm not a Greek scholar. Uh, I don't know anything of that. But in my opinion, this is just my opinion, that in about three bucks, five bucks, you can get a cup of coffee. It's gone up a little bit. But um, in my opinion, it would be pretty presumptu- presumptuous to say it was good for Silas you know, to stay there. It's almost like, how do you know that? Um, but be that as it may... Notice that Silas did not receive a word of prophecy instructing him to stick around. Not like, you know, somebody prophesied. At least, at least we're not told that in scriptures. It, it could have happened, right? But we're not told that in scriptures, that he received a word of prophecy instructing him to stay behind. It, Silas was not reading scripture and then sensing the Lord leading him through his devotions. He might have, but we're not told that in scriptures. Silas was not praying and asking the Lord for direction and receiving an answer, but I undoubtedly believe he was a man of prayer. Again, those are all possibilities, but scripture doesn't tell us. It just says, it seemed good to Silas to remain there. I looked up that word seemed, and it expresses the subjective mental estimate or opinion formed by man concerning a matter. The way it's worded, it was just Silas's opinion and desire to stay at Antioch. So my question is, is it possible to be guided by the Lord through something as subjective as our own personal desire, something we just want to do? Can God lead us in that way? Well, let's look at some scripture. In Psalm 37, Verse four, it says, delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Man, I want that brand new card. (laughs) Commit your way to the Lord, trust also in him and he shall bring it to pass. Jesus said this in John 15, verses seven and eight. If you abide in me, And my words abide in me, excuse me, and my words abide in you, you will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. So if I look at both of those scriptures and I think that out, if I'm delighting in the Lord, man, my delight is in the Lord. He's just, he's the focus of my life. And I'm committing my way to the Lord and if i'm abiding in the lord and if the word of god is abiding in me then yes i can be led by something as subjective as my own personal desires you see because if those conditions are true of my life my desires are going to line up with god's will because i'm i'm my heart's just with the lord i'm just i'm seeking hard after the lord then my desires are going to be hard after the lord as well then my desires will line up with God's will. My desire will be to glorify God and to bear fruit in whatever decision I'm making. So yes, he can lead through something as subjective as my own personal desires. When we move on here in verse 35, Paul and Barnabas also remained in Antioch, teaching and preaching the word of the Lord with many others also. Man, I would have loved to have gone to the Church of Antioch. The Church of Antioch was a healthy church. If you go back to Acts chapter 11, verse 20, we read, "But some of them, uh, some excuse me, but some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene who, when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, preaching the Lord Jesus, and the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord." Antioch was a very pagan city a very uh, metropolitan city. And yet here the Lord God is doing a mighty work in Antioch, and a great number of people are believing and turning to the Lord. In other words, people's lives, they're getting saved, and their lives are being changed. Man, I pray that that's what's going to be taking place there in that college in Kentucky. You know that lives are being changed. Later on in that same chapter, verse 22, it says, then the news of the, excuse me, Acts chapter 11, verse 22, the news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. They heard this, this move of God was taking place. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as Antioch. And when he had came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all with purpose, uh, that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. So Barnabas, they hear this, man, these people are getting saved, and they send Barnabas up. Check it out, Barnabas. And he goes there, and what does he see? He sees God's grace. God's grace is evident in the lives of the believers, and they're extending grace to one another because they've been impacted by God's grace. And this church is marked by grace. Antioch was a healthy church. Verse 25 It says, then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. The word Christian is actually Christ folks. The inhabitants of Antioch are recognized as having a difference there, there, there's something different about them in their lives, they are in effect calling the the christian or the people in Antioch Jesus freaks or Jesus people that's what they're calling them in their in their in their vernacular they're calling them Christians or little Christ now they probably meant it derogatorily. But, I mean, I'd rather have somebody call me that, you know, derogatorily than just say he's a nice guy. I'd rather say, man, I, there's something about him, man. He's a Jesus freak. Man, tell me that. I'd love to hear that. So this church was healthy. Lives are being changed. People were looking like Christ. Grace is flowing in this body of believers. And, man, they got these great teachers man, these apostles and prophets. Man, the gifts of the Spirit are flowing. It's a great place. In Ephesians 4, Paul wrote this. Verse 11, he says, And he himself gave some to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a perfect man, to the measure of the statue of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, in the cunning craft. Of deceitful plotting, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things into Him who is the Head, Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and knit together by what every joint supplies, according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself in love. God gave all these roles to the church to build up the church. Leaders in the church, they dedicate themselves to building strong and healthy Christians. That's their goal. We want to edify. We want to build up the body of Christ in any church. And as the the saints are built up and as they're they're equipped for the work of the ministry, they start growing into maturity, and then they start doing the work of the ministry. And what happens? It causes the growth of the body. That's That's the sign of a healthy church. Warren Wiersbe describes it this way. The members of the church grow by feeding on the word and ministering to each other. And the first evidence of spiritual growth is Christlikeness. Man, do we look like Christ? Do we sound like Christ? Do we think like Christ? Do we act like Christ? The second evidence is stability. Stability. The maturing Christian is not tossed about by every religious novelty that comes along. Every wind of doctrine that sweeps through. Oh, here's a new thing, let's jump on that. No, they're, 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 they're anchored in the word. The third evidence of maturity is truth joined with love. Speaking the truth, but it's in love to one another. And then he says this, one more evidence of maturity is cooperation, and he quotes chapter Ephesians 4, verse 16, which I just read to you. We realize that as members of the one body and a local body, we belong to each other, we affect each other, and we need each other. Each believer, no matter how insignificant he may appear, has a ministry to other believers. Now we're here for each other. That's, what, that's a healthy church. A healthy church is when we're here ministering to one another. So Antioch was a healthy church. Verse 36. Then after some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they were doing. I think I've said it a couple times now. Antioch was a healthy church. I don't know if you caught that before. It was a healthy church with a healthy ministry team. Can you imagine? All these guys are on, these are guys on your staff. Man, that's your church. And it's a growing congregation. People look like Christ. People are just being gracious to one another. People are loving one another, cooperating one another. They're ministering. People in the world and the community go, man, there's something different about these guys. I wonder what that is. I would want to stay at a church like that, wouldn't you? But Paul wasn't called to pastor a single church. Paul was called to be an apostle to the Gentiles. And you know what's interesting here? Paul didn't receive a vision. At least we're not told of it. He didn't receive a vision or a word from the Lord. Paul was led, and I don't know that it was necessarily a desire of Paul either. Paul was led by a deep burden within his heart. Man, he had a concern for the new Gentiles that had just come to faith in all those cities that they had traveled to, that he had led to the Lord. You know, some people have said, Paul was not only a spiritual obstetrician bringing spiritual babies into the kingdom, but he was a spiritual pediatrician helping these babies grow in the Lord. I like that. You see, God had given Paul the heart of a shepherd. A heart of a shepherd is one who cares more for the flock that's vulnerable than for his own comfort and success. Paul had a shepherd's heart, and he's thinking about all these Gentiles out there. You could just hear the heart of a shepherd, excuse me, you can hear the the shepherd heart of God in his condemnation of the self-seeking shepherds of Israel in Ezekiel. God had a lot of words to say about the shepherds that were all about themselves. In Ezekiel 34, verse 5, this is how God is, is. this is the heart of God. You know, I'm encouraging you guys to read through the word. Man, as you're reading, praying and say, Lord, Lord, show me your heart. Because you read these stories and, you yeah, know, there's different things going on, but you, you get the Lord's heart. The more you read it, you start sensing, man, this is what the Lord loves, or this is what the Lord doesn't love. Well, this is what the Lord says about these false shepherds. In Ezekiel 34, verse 5, it says, So they were scattered, because there was no shepherd. And they became food for all the beasts of the field when they were scattered. My sheep wandered through all the mountains and on every high hill. Yes, my flock was scattered over the whole face of the earth, and no one was seeking or searching for them. These shepherds were all about themselves. But Paul, God had given Paul the heart of a shepherd. He has this burden and this concern, and he wants to go city by city to every single pra- place where he preached to check up on these new converts. And so he says, hey, Barnabas, man, this is a, i got this burden, and, and I want to go do this. And you know, Barnabas, what a great guy, right? The encourager, he's like, let's go for it. He's all about that. Yeah, I want to go through and encourage the church. Verse 37. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John, called Mark. When it says that he was determined, it means that he was resolved to take John and Mark. In fact, it literally means he was bound and determined to take John Mark. It wasn't like he just said, hey, what what do you think, Paul? Do you think we should bring John Mark with us? No. He's like... We're bringing John Mark with us. He had made that decision. It does not say that he suggested or he asked. He was determined to take him. In other words, whether or not, uh, you know, when Paul and Barnabas were on that first mission trip and John Mark left, he departed from them. And who knows if Paul and Barnabas were talking about it on their way up to Antioch of Pisidia. We're not told. But obviously, it was an impact on them. And Barnabas knew the impact John Mark's desertion had had on he and Paul. He thought about it. And he determined to take him anyway. So back during their first missionary journey, it's recorded in Acts chapter 13. And I talked about this when we were in Acts 13. But it's believed by many that Paul contracted malaria when he was coming through that region in Pamphylia. It's a coastal plain. It's right up, it's, it's right on the edge of the Mediterranean, and there's a mountain range right behind it. So it's kind of socked in. And uh, it would be very hot and very humid there compared to the nice cool ocean breezes in Cyprus. It was like everything backed up in there, and it would not be very comfortable. Probably a lot of mosquitoes. It's probably, it probably is where Paul contracted malaria, if he actually did. Ministry had become much more difficult at this time and less less successful because there's no mention of Paul preaching in Perga or any converts. So maybe, you know, whether he did or not, but we don't re- read of any great church that sprung up there. So ministry might have all said, you know, hey, we had all this success, and now it's kind of tough. It's miserable. The temperature's hot and humid. People are getting bit by mosquitoes. Paul's sicker than a dog. And then they had left that area in Perga, and they climbed some 3,600 feet in elevation to reach the Galatian city of the city in Antioch. And it could quite possibly be that they went to that elevation to get Paul out of that climate so that he could start recovering from his malaria. The thing about those mountains is that they were desolate and they were rugged. And in those days, it was a, it was a very a good place for robbers to hide out. And so it was very dangerous. You notice when you read of the, all the trips that the apostles took, it was not like Paul just went by himself. And, no, no, no. They had they went in groups of people. Why? Because it was dangerous. And so it was a rugged climbing, probably. It probably was hot there, too. And it was dangerous. And then also, up until Acts chapter 13, verse 13, Uncle Barnabas, or maybe Cousin Barnabas, I think he was his uncle, the encourager was leading the mission. If you read all the different things, it's Barnabas, and then it's Paul mentioned. Until you get to verse 13 of chapter 13, and all of a sudden, at some point, now Paul's—it's Paul's team. Paul's making, calling the shots. And maybe Mark was like, "I don't like this guy. He's—he's I, I, he's too harsh. He's not like my—he's not like my really my kind uncle, Uncle Barney. You know, I like Barney." Uh, And so maybe he had a resentment. And that's why, we don't know why he left. I'm just speculating. But he did leave. Barnabas considered and decided, and he was bound and determined that they should take John Mark along. You know, we're not told why he was bound and determined. But I think when you start to read about his characteristic, I, I think I can understand it. Here's the encourager. And yeah, you know, his cousin or his nephew had failed, and it had impacted them quite a bit, I'm sure. But Barnabas is one of those guys that looks at some of that failed and said, you know, I, there's potential. I don't want to give up on that person. There's potential in that person. And so Barnabas wanted to bring him along, probably to encourage him and to develop him. Verse 38, But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia, the one. Notice that the one, which is not like, Paul had some pretty strong feelings there. But Paul insisted that they should not take with them the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. In the New King James Version, it says that I just read to you, Paul insisted. In the King James Version, it says Paul thought not good. And I went to Robertson's Word Dictionary to read up on that. And it says this, the Greek is far more effective than this English rendering. It literally was, but Paul kept on deeming it wise not to be taking along with them this one. So, there's something going on there, right? Barnabas is bound and determined. Paul keeps insisting, no, we're not bringing them. Barnabas says, we're bringing them. No, we're not bringing them. You can just kind of picture what's taking place there. Paul saw that it would be a problem to have a quitter on his hands. And he gave his reasons. He says they shouldn't take... With them, the one who had departed from them in Pamphylia. This is a very strong word, by the way. That departed, the word apostasy, that's the word apostasy. When when you talk about an apostate, that's pretty serious. This is how Paul viewed John Mark. That word apostasy means to desert, to withdraw from, to fall away, or to remove yourself from. He said the one who had departed from them and Pamphylia and had not gone with them to the work. From Robertson's it says this, At Perga, Mark faced the same task that Paul and Barnabas did, but he flinched and flickered and quit. Paul declined to repeat the experiment with Mark. I don't want to have him fail again. I don't want him to leave us again right when we need him the most. And in verse 39, it says, then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. You know, we're not told what Barnabas said. We're not told what his reasons. We're only told what what Paul said, right? Paul gave his reasons. And for some of you reading this, you might be thinking, man, Paul's pretty harsh. And, you know, if if you're thinking this, you don't have to nod or anything like this. Nobody's nodding, but if you're thinking this, If you're thinking that he's pretty harsh, I want you to consider some things. The Jerusalem Council that we just read last week, we were studied about, that happened in approximately 50 AD. Paul's letter to the Galatians is written, we're guessing, we're estimating, probably 48 to 49 AD. In Paul's letter to the Galatians, he describes an event that occurred prior to his writing this letter. So, in other words, in 48 or 49 AD, he's writing this letter about something that occurred before that. How far before, I don't know. But it's after the Jerusalem Council, which means it's after what we're talking about today. And he said this in Galatians 2, verse 11. Now, when Peter had come to Antioch, I withstood him to his face, because he was to be blamed For before certain men came from James, he would eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he withdrew and separated himself, fearing those who were of the circumcision. And the rest of the Jews also played the hypocrite with them, so that even Barnabas was carried away with their hypocrisy. Even Barnabas, the encourager, the guy who's the kind-hearted guy that just wants to give everybody their opportunities to encourage them. The Barnabas, the encourager, wanting to take along a young man who had failed sounds noble to those of you that have that same personality. Some people say, wow, oh, Paul's so harsh. Man, I like, I like the way Barnabas approached this. It's probably because that's your personality. There's nothing wrong with that. I'm not saying you're bad. There's nothing wrong with that. It sounds noble. But you see, Barnabas the encourager was not always the noble saint who took the high road. He was a man who failed too. He had been a hypocrite. And this latest situation, it possibly could have irritated an old wound in Paul, thinking back to the situation that took place at Antioch. You know, Paul was pretty adamant about the Gentiles coming to faith by grace, you know, through faith alone. They didn't have to do any of the circumcision all this stuff. And here, all these people were—you know—they were acting like they were the friends. And then all of a sudden, when 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 the legalists showed up, they kind of backed away. They're being two-faced, and I'm sure it just burned. It just angered Paul, and he approached them and confronted them in love. Spoke the truth, but it was in love. So it's possible. Again, scriptures doesn't say it's possible that an old wound may have just—maybe a scab just ripped open—and he's like, there he is again. So was this a godly contention? Scriptures doesn't tell us. You know, the thing is, though, Scriptures doesn't sugarcoat or try to hide men's failings when it occurs. You can read that throughout Scriptures. These guys were people. They had different personality traits. They had different backgrounds. They had different ways to approach and deal with situations. And I think it was unfortunate that this, was, that this contention was so sharp. But you know what I also see in here? I see in the church of Antioch, it's still thriving. It's still healthy. Years earlier, there was this hypocrisy issue that Paul had addressed in Galatians. And like I said, Paul was passionate about the Gentiles being saved by faith alone. And Peter's the Apostle Peter and Barnabas and others' hypocrisy, it needed to be confronted, and it needed to be addressed. What was the result? Years later here, we're reading about Antioch, this church that's healthy. It's a growing church. It's a church where grace is is evident. Gifts of the Spirit. Man, people are getting saved. Lives are changed at this church. Also, at the Jerusalem Council... A few verses earlier, and and the Bible says many days. We don't know how how long ago that was. There appears to be no lingering issue between Paul and Peter or Paul and Barnabas from that event that Paul describes in Galatians. At the Jerusalem Council, there's no evidence that there's this tension underneath these guys, this underlying thing. There's no harboring of resentment. There's no strife. They had dealt with the issues, and they had moved on. That's a godly thing to do. This latest issue it may have reminded Paul of of Barnabas's hypocrisy earlier. You know, we can't forget things, right? I mean, we try to, but you know, if somebody hurts you, they hurt you and you know, it's there. You you deal with it, you try to you try to move on, but sometimes you're reminded of those things. Paul was a man just like you and I, and he might have been affected by by that. What I don't see here I don't see any statement that the leaders of the church had to step in. There's no people that said, well, then we had to separate Paul, and we had to have a meeting, sit down, and we had to talk this thing out. There's no mention of that here in scriptures, and there's no group of people mentioned. This issue was between Paul and Barnabas. Neither Paul nor Barnabas dragged anyone onto their side. Do you, know that you see that? The church of Antioch remained healthy And vibrant as a result. Now, the church in Corinth, that was another story. Paul wrote this to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 3. And I, brethren, cannot speak to you as to spiritual people, but as to carnal, as to babes in Christ. I fed you with milk and not with solid food, for until now you were not able to receive it, and even now you're still not able, for you are still carnal. For where there are envy, strife, and divisions among you, are you not carnal and behaving like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another, I am of Apollos, are you not carnal? That was Corinth. We don't see that here in Antioch. But there is this issue that came up. There was this sharp contention, and it was sharp. It was hard. Words were exchanged. There's no sugarcoating the fact that this was sharp. Words were exchanged that probably wouldn't have, or shouldn't have, I should say, probably that shouldn't have. There's no indication of a resolution of a coming to terms in this chapter. It just says they parted ways. That's sad when that takes place. This is not a high point in the history of the church. It's unfortunate But even the pillars of the faith failed in this situation. Why? Because they're human just like you and I are. Just like all of us. We're all human. Their disagreement led to separation. And you know what's sad about that? Paul owed a lot to Barnabas. He was leaving a true friend. Think about it. Barnabas had introduced Paul the encourager, had introduced Paul to the skeptical apostles there in Jerusalem. You know, they're like, we don't trust this guy, you know. He was a persecutor, man. And Barnabas says, I want you to meet him. And brings him there. He's the one who also traveled to Tarsus to seek out Paul and to bring him back to Antioch. He cared about him. So Paul owed a lot to Barnabas. And Barnabas was leaving, as A.T. Robertson says, the greatest spirit of the time and of all times. That's a, this is a sad separation. It's not a, good, it's not a good thing. It's not a high point in the church. This isn't, this isn't like, okay, here's the role. These are the ways you leave somebody in fellowship, guys. This is what you do. That's not what this teaching is about. This is an unfortunate thing. But that's life. If you've ever been in a church for any length of time, you know that this kind of stuff takes place. It does. So who was right and who was wrong? That's a good question, isn't it? There's always, somebody's got to be right and somebody's got to be wrong. You can't both be right, right? Well, this is what Spurgeon says. Charles Spurgeon says this about Paul. He says, Paul would not go out a second time with a faint-hearted deserter, and he was right. Barnabas Believing that John Mark was penitent for what he had done and would henceforth be faithful, wished to give him another opportunity, and he was right. Now since these two brethren had each right on his side, neither of them could yield the point without violating his honest judgment. And we do not therefore wonder that the contention grew hot. The Holy Spirit is very considerate in thus recording the difficulties which occurred even among inspired men. How can we expect always to see eye to eye when Paul and Barnabas differed? I like that. It's so true. So in verse 39 it says, And so Barnabas took Mark, and sailed to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. And he went through Syria and Cilicia, strengthening the churches. Was it God's will that Paul and Barnabas had this sharp contention and parted ways? I don't think so. But there does seem to be a reconciliation of some sort in the relationships Five years later, after what you and I are reading here in Acts chapter 15, Paul writes this to his letter to the the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 5 and 6, he says, Do we have no right to take along a believing wife, as do also the other apostles, the brothers of the Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working? That's the only thing we know about Barnabas and Paul's relationship, but it seems like there was some kind of reconciliation, at least somewhere in between those five years. But we're not told. Scripture doesn't tell us. It seems to be some sort of reconciliation. So this thing that happened, it happened between two men, who was right and who was wrong, we don't know. I, I, I can't I can't make a judgment on that. But what I do like is how God took this and turned it around for his glory. God always does those things. The but God's in the Bible are great. You know, you read something that's really bad and then you and then it says but God. And it doesn't say that in the scripture, but you see it in the scripture. But God did a work. God used even a sad, unfortunate, and un- unnecessary sharp contention and departing of ways of these two apostles for his glory. Why? God used Paul. Paul would continue to spread the gospel throughout the Gentile world. I mean, most of the I mean the world, you know. Most of the New Testament epistles were written by Paul and recorded and preserved for us today. God used Paul even after this thing. God also used Barnabas. Now, Scripture doesn't record cities that he evangelized or churches that he started. And I don't know, you know, I haven't read the church history, so there might be some church history or traditions or something written about Barnabas. But his desire to give John Mark a second chance and to work with him, it paid off. It paid off because scripture does record how John Mark, who didn't finish or didn't start well as a young man, he finished well. About eight to 12 years later, after what you and I are reading this morning in Acts chapter 15, Paul would write this to the Colossians. Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you with Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, about whom you received instructions. If he comes to you, welcome him. John Mark didn't sail off into the sunset as a failed person. And Barnabas encouraged him, and here he is. He's a brother to Paul, a fellow apostle, a fellow prisoner. About ten years later, after what we just read in Acts chapter 15, Paul would write this to Philemon. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. About 10 to 15 years later, after what you and I just read here in Acts chapter 15, Peter would write this. She who is in Babylon elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. You know, John Mark is the author of the Gospel of Mark. It's the same person. About 17 years later, after what you and I just read here in Acts chapter 15, the Apostle Paul, he's arrested a second time. He was arrested once, went to Rome. He was put under house arrest. He was in an apartment, basically. He couldn't leave, but he was in an apartment. He could receive guests, they could come and visit and come and go. That was his first arrest. Now he's arrested. This time he's not under house arrest. He's not free to receive support and guests. He's chained and in a prison dungeon awaiting his execution. This is the end of his life. He knows that it's the end of his life. And so he pens this last epistle that we have to Timothy. Second Timothy 4, verses 9, it says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescents for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Man, isn't that amazing? Here's this guy who had departed, who had apostatized from Paul and Barnabas on that first mission trip. At the end of Paul's life, you know, Demas, Demas had left, Demas had departed, and it says, having loved this world. So Demas fell away. But Paul asked Timothy to bring Mark, the young man who had deserted him as a young man because he's useful to him for ministry. You see, I think God used both those situations. God used both Paul and Barnabas, their different personalities, They had a different ministry focus. They had different passions because of how they were, their internal makeup, their personalities, the way they grew up, the way God had wired them. And in spite of the failing of these two to come together back in Antioch, God God does a work for his glory. And remember earlier I said, can God lead you by your desires? Remember it seemed good to Silas to remain in Antioch? It turned out it was good. It was God's will. Because he has accompanied Paul in his second missionary journey, fulfilling a key role of spreading the gospel to the Gentiles. You know, we may have sharp disagreements. It's going to happen. We have different personalities. You think of things a certain way, I think of things a different way, or you know to you might have things that you think differently, and there may be disagreements and it may grow sharp. That's just the nature of life. This isn't a perp- perfect place. There was a guy and his wife that attended our church, and they were the neatest people. and uh, we were getting ready to do a baptism. And um, it was a Saturday, Saturday evening. I'm getting ready for Sunday, and I get this phone call late at night from this from this brother, this guy that had attended our church for for a while, him and his wife. And he said, "You know, I'm really having a trouble with this with this baptism that you're going to do." And I said, "Really? Why?" And he started to explain to me that he doesn't believe in the Trinity. He believes in God the Father and Jesus the Son, but he says the Holy Spirit is not a separate person. And so we had a discussion about that, and it was—I wouldn't say it was sharp because we didn't have a sharp disagreement about it—but but I'm like, okay, you believe that? I I don't see that in scriptures, and he was pointing out in scriptures. So we had we had a conversation for quite a while, and you know what he told me? He said we're going to leave the church. I said okay, and he said, you know why? He he said. I don't, want to, I don't want to impact anybody, so we're just going to leave. We're just not going to, we won't be there next Sunday. We won't be there after that. And he said he didn't want to influence anyone in the church negatively. You see, his concern was greater for this church than for his position. It was more, he was more concerned for the unity of the body of Christ than his own, what I, this is what I think. No, he's like, okay, this is what I think, but you know what? I don't want to cause any kind of disruption. Disruption. You know what I told him? I said, brother, (laughs) you can come back anytime. Anytime. You're welcome here. Why did I say that? Because his heart was in the right place. His facts may have been wrong, but his heart was in the right place. I I love that. You and I may not have all the facts together, but if your heart's in the right place, man, we can work together. We can love one another. We can minister. We can impact this community if our hearts are in the right place, even if our facts may be wrong. You know, the temptation in a disagreement is to pull a group of people to our side. There's a temptation to talk about it. And why do you do that? And, it, you know, it's a, it's our human nature, right? I feel so strongly and this person, I disagree with them, so I'm going to pull people to my side because I, I want to justify how I'm feeling about something. And so you get this group of people to justify our position and and what happens is the other party looks bad to these other group of people. And you know what the devil loves this? The devil loves this because he wants to neuter any kind of work of God's grace and and, and unity of the spirit in any church. This is that like, this is like he's right there, you know. This is like this is prime. It's it's fertile. Paul and Barnabas even though they did not come together in reconciliation, even though they parted ways, they didn't drag others into it. The church of Antioch remained healthy as a result, and God used even this sad situation for his glory. I think it's a good story. It's a sad story, but man, God's so good. You know, God who created the universe, he created you and I. And we all have different backgrounds. We have different personalities, like I said. I may look at something and go, the sky's blue. And you may look at it and say, no, I think it's more, you know, green or whatever. And we we may view things differently. The thing is, God's brought us together in a body. And a body's got different parts, different members. My hand acts differently than my foot, thankfully, (laughs) you know our bodies they're they're different but we're but we're together my hand doesn't like slap my slap me every once in a while like you stupid guy you know my hand doesn't do that why because it cares for the body my 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 bladder doesn't all of a sudden you know explode in my body because it's trying to kill something you know it just sometimes my bladder feels like it's going to explode but <laughs> my point is this god has brought individuals together and we are an imperfect. We're we're made, we're flesh, right? We're humans that fail. We're we're humans that sin. We're humans that offend and suffer. And God knows that. And He still brings us together and He chooses to use us in spite of ourselves. That's grace. That's grace. That's God's grace. To God be the glory. Why don't you stand Let's go, Lord, in prayer.